You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites. And it's brought to you by the NRMA, who are leading the charge in helping Australians transition to electric vehicles. By rolling out Australia's largest regional fast charging network, along with advocacy and education, the NRMA is making the electric transition more accessible for more people. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the founder and editor of The Driven and uh, also of its associated websites, Renew Economy and One Step Off the Grid. And the podcast is back after a absence of a few months and we intend to make it now a regular event, fortnightly, if not even weekly. And um, we're very grateful for the support of our first sponsor in this endeavour, which is NRMA. And we promise to bring you a whole series of interesting interviews and, of course, some discussions about the major news events of the past week or the past fortnight. And um, uh, we look forward to bringing that with you. That'll be myself and also the chief reporter from The Driven, Daniel Bleakley. Now, to get us going, Daniel has interviewed this week Tony Fairweather. He's the uh, founder and CEO of ECA Electric probably Australia's most successful electric vehicle um, company, um, if you like. It's um, made quite a business in sort of adapting electric trucks uh, in Australia and more recently in the US. Um, it's a fascinating venture, um, a really sort of, you know, um, ahead of its time, if you like. Anyway, let's have a listen to Daniel's interview with Tony Fairweather. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today, uh, Tony. It's real, really good to see you. And um, yeah, you're you're back in Australia after after being in in the states for a while because uh, SEA is now now headquartered in in the US. I understand. Um, I just thought maybe we'd start off if if, if you could give us a, a bit of a background on SEA Electric and um, yeah, what what you've been working on over the last decade. Yeah, absolutely. No, great to be with you, Dan. Appreciate the uh, the time. Um, yeah, it's been a, an interesting journey for us. You know, founded uh, just over ten years ago now in um, in Melbourne, Australia, and you know, I founded the business with a really really clear vision, and that was to develop zero emission technology for a particular segment of the automotive industry. That being the um, what we termed here in Australia the delivery and distribution vehicle segment, but um, what's referred to primarily in uh, North America as the last mile um, uh, segment. Um, yeah, being those uh, urban delivery applications that um, are, um, you know, kind of start, stop around town, um, fixed routes, um, back to base for um, for specific, um, uh, you know, reasonable amount of dwell time for, for charging opportunity and low cost charging opportunity in a segment that, we saw very early on that was going to be um, um, that was going to be the first to to scale uh, without the need for incentives, and we, we're we're starting to see that now, ten years down the down the track. But as I mentioned, we we founded the uh, the business in Australia, we developed the technology in Australia, and tested and trialed, uh, validated uh, across a range of um, uh, of reasonable size fleets, and and also saw OEM testing. Um, did a bit into into New Zealand and um, and South Africa and um, yeah, when the time was right, once we had enough um, uh, enough validation of the um, of the technology and enough confidence of our proprietary technology that we developed, which we refer to as 
as C Drive, uh, we embarked on the on the US um, for for two reasons. One was to obviously take advantage of the scale opportunities that that are there, but but also take advantage of the capital markets that, quite frankly, weren't available in the um, in Australia to fund the sort of business that we wanted to be, and and you know, still not available in Australia. So it was the uh, the right decision to to make at the time. Yeah, fantastic. And you're, you're based in California in, in the US? Is that where the yeah, factory yeah, we've is? Yeah, we've got a couple of presents. Our, our major sales and after-sales office is in California, in uh, Torrance, um, uh, which is not too far from, from LAX. And, and is essentially the, the EV hub of, of LA, um, uh, of Los Angeles. Um, and as I said, lots of sales and um, sales opportunities in California because of incentives and... Um, and uh, um, uh, the appetite there, as well as um, legislation and policy. But we actually, our, our engineering and technical centre and, and our assembly, primary assembly operations are in Des Moines, Iowa, um, uh, kind of in the Midwest. Uh, and um, I actually reside now in Miami. I had a couple of years in, in LA and now have been in uh, Miami, Florida for a couple of years, just to be have access to the East Coast as well as access to Europe. Um, uh, and from an East Coast perspective, it's the capital markets as well as the um, uh, the assembly operations that we have there across our own in Des Moines, Iowa, and also with partnership with OEM contracts we now have with uh, Mac that's owned by Volvo and uh, and Hino uh, that's in um, Virginia and West Virginia, respectively. Yeah, fantastic. And you, you're working on uh, some pretty interesting projects over there. Understand. Um, I think we reported on this last year, but um, you guys are part of the U.S. government's big uh, school bus conversion project. Is that, is that right? Yeah, we the the um, yeah the Biden administration has um, has put five and a half billion dollars U.S. towards um, electrifying the yellow school bus industry in the um, in the U.S. Now that yellow school bus industry is um, about five hundred fifty thousand. School buses currently in operation. Yeah, There's wow. about thirty odd thousand new buses a year that goes go into that um, into that uh, uh, those fleets. Um, and until recently, they were all diesel. Uh, interestingly, the Biden administration's you know acknowledged and recognised for the first time that the you know not only is there a huge environmental aspect of of diesel engines, um, you know, large diesel diesel engines in in operations and commercial vehicle operations, but also there's a health angle uh, and the word world health organization has also now put in writing that um, the the particulates that are emitted from diesel engines particularly older diesel engines you know five years plus are, are known carcinogens um, and uh, so the you know, um, Washington has said enough's enough we need to get those out of the as a as an initial focus and target we need to get those out of school bus applications that are you know, carrying our kids and future generations around and and put their money where their mouth is now the first billion of that has um has a tranche has, has come out about six or, or 12 months ago and that was primarily focused on new product uh, our focus in that space is aftermarket as you just mentioned is conversions we've we've done a number of converted product test trial validated um, we're working closely with the epa in in washington there's another tranche of 500 million coming out in uh, their summer or the end of summer, so it'll be July, August this year, and we're very much hoping that the the support, the funding is in there for aftermarket conversions. We know they have appetite, but they wanted to get the new school bus um, manufacturers stimulated initially. 
So um, we're um, yeah, holding our breath, and I'm sure that there will be some some um, support funding for that, which which will take us to the next level in um, in just in the school bus segment alone. Yeah, fantastic. And and there's been some really um, incredible studies coming out. I saw one last week um, from from the US, which showed that um, already with some of these uh, some of these communities that have switched over to electric buses. They're actually already seeing um, higher school attendancy rates um, in in the data already because um, yeah, assumably um, students are feeling better because they're not breathing in this uh, this toxic uh, diesel particulate pollution. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, yeah, I think the um, the school bus um, our school bus drivers also um, you know have a have a real uh, real challenge with uh, particularly some of the older school buses and some of them are you know fifteen plus years. Um, so I think they've uh, got a higher rate of retention now with school bus drivers as well. So it's, you know, it's a good sign um, and it's, it's much needed, but not just in school bus. You know, it's needed in the, um, in the truck space as well in you know, commercial um, uh, delivery vehicles, particularly in Australia where everything that is delivering product in urban applications is diesel. Australia has, at least the US had a stepping stone, a stage towards removing diesel engines from um, from commercial vehicles where they move to gasoline or petrol. Um, Australia just supports uh, diesel, the diesel industry and you know, every urban application at the moment, other than the product that we've had delivered, uh, is um, spewing out diesel particulates. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really horrible stuff. And um, I think like for, for me, that's, that's probably the most exciting thing about the, the EV uh, transition uh, broadly is that the that we're, we're going to have just these massive societal wide health benefits that that come with it for 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 everyone, including the the drivers. I used to live um, not far from a, a a big bus depot in in Melbourne, and you, you could smell it. You know, you, you could you, you could smell the diesel exhaust around. You could see it on the on your um, your balcony or on your windows, you know, accumulating, um, and to think that all that stuff's going into our lungs, and and the drivers who have to, um, you know, ha have to work in those conditions every day. Absolutely, the US has gone to the you know the next level of quantifying fatalities from um, you know from diesel emissions uh, historically, and and you know it's only a matter of time before Australia does the same. But I think they'd be pretty um, you know pretty. Pretty scary numbers once they had a look at what um, you know what's happening with uh, with diesel emissions. Yeah, absolutely. And that that kind of um, I, know, I mean another industry that that also um, would would um, would suffer with a lot of the, the diesel particulate pollution would be mining, the mining industry. And um, yeah, we also reported that um, C, C Electric uh, recently um, took on a project with um, Mervac. Is it? Mevco. Mevco, Mevco, sorry, yeah. Mevco to supply um, eight and a half thousand um, converged, converted Hilux, uh, Hilux and Land Cruiser Utes for the mining industry. Yep. Um, yeah. Could could you give us a bit of an update on on that? Yeah, well, it was an opportunity that came you know, came our way. With one we didn't or didn't pursue. Um, you know, Mevco is a um, relatively new business, but it's it's backed by um, RCF uh, Jollymont out of out of Melbourne, which is a very well known uh, mining um, equipment financing company. Um, and the you know, the mining companies are desperate for, particularly all wheel drive 
um, electric utility vehicles. Um, and yeah, Toyota in, in the case of Australia is the, the biggest selling product, Hilux and the, um, uh, the um, Series 70 uh, Land Cruiser. Um, and so we were um, we were happy and open to um, uh, to work with them on a on a program. Yeah, Toyota currently don't have uh, any electric solution for that. We understand they do have um, um, you know, plans for the four by two model down the track to follow the likes of what LDV and the likes are doing. Um, but we were we were well progressed with a, a solution, which is why Mevco came across our path because we've been working with Toyota in. Indonesia for um, uh, more than a year now on electrifying a product that they call the Anova, um, which is based on the same chassis that the Hilux is um, uh, is based on. So um, Mevco were aware of that and knew that we could bring a product to market pretty quickly. We've got the first um, uh, two-wheel drive solutions being um, uh, built and, and uh, distributed and deployed into into Western Australia at the moment. Uh, and we're getting pretty close to finalising the plans for the all-wheel drive solution. So it's a great opportunity. You know, it's one that relies on Toyota you know, supporting and partnering in terms of glider supply over time. So we've got a bit of work to do there um, uh, before we know the absolute scale um, opportunities there. But you know, we've, we've successfully navigated those same um, programs and, and requirements with, with Hino, who's a sister company to Toyota, and, and now with Mac. Uh, who's owned by Volvo and arguably the, the biggest uh, um, and most successful commercial vehicle uh, company in the world. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I was actually just chatting with uh, a mate of mine last week who I studied engineering with yeah, probably 20 years ago now in, in Brisbane. And he mentioned that he'd, uh, well, he's got an engineering company up in Brisbane now and um, works a lot with the mining industry. And he mentioned that he's actually driven one and, and said it was pretty pretty cool to drive um, drive an electric uh, ute up up there in in Queensland, and um, yeah, he at, at uni he had a uh, a V eight Monaro that he'd done up, and he was like a full blown petrol head. So to hear him <laughs> um, praising electric vehicles was was pretty pretty special. Um, yeah, that's great. Good to hear. Yeah. Um, so yeah, also wanted to to chat about um, some of the other vehicles that that you guys um that you guys offer I, th I think a few years ago um you'd built a couple of uh garbage electric garbage trucks is that right that's right yep yep so we've got a we've got a range of refuse vehicles operating in um australia and new zealand um but we've we've actually just embarked on and um you know, i suppose hot off the press we're about to release it the advanced clean truck show on the first of may which is why i'm heading back next weekend to uh um, a, a, a substantial uh, show and probably the only dedicated zero emission commercial vehicle show in the world called the ACT show, which has now been moved to Anaheim from, from Long Beach in California. Um, and because we've uh, announced the, uh, the Mac and the Hino program, we won't be displaying and don't need to display that product on our booth because it'll be displayed on theirs. Um, so we're actually launching our uh, what's known as C-Drive 250, which is our largest battery electric solution. It's a higher voltage solution to what we've been operating elsewhere and in refuse here, um, but targeted at the heavier refuse uh, industry in um, uh, in US. And when I say heavier, they, they run heavier trucks there. Actually, I saw an article today on the... Uh, from the HVIA you know, requesting heavier uh, road limits for, for you know, zero emission product in Australia. And it needs to happen. You know, Australia and New Zealand, I think Hong Kong are the only countries in the world that have limitations to 22 and a half tonne. 
and obviously batteries add more weight. So that's going to be a limitation in the in Australia for heavier commercial vehicles to go um, battery electric or, or hydrogen or a combination of. Uh, but we'll be launching that uh, actually on a Dennis Eagle um, a model at the uh, ACT show, the C-Drive 250, with an optional hydrogen range extender. So the challenge in that space, when you get over over um, 22 and a half tonne, effectively you, you need more battery, higher voltage, and um, um, to be able to achieve the duty cycle and the, and the range and the performance. And the economics then start to tap out if you just keep putting more batteries um, and you, you lose too much payload for refuse. So our solution is the, um, the base 250 kilowatt hour battery solution, which is a, which is a nice size solution. Um, but adding an optional um, 45 kilowatt hydrogen range extender, which, which uh, with, with three tanks up to 15 kilo of, of hydrogen, which, which actually charges the batteries while they're in service. So it takes a, a product that might do it um, 100 miles or what's that, 160 kilometres um, and lift a thousand bins to doubling that to 320 kilometres and um, no, actually another, uh, another um, uh, 50% of that. So let's call it 200 kilometres um, and uh, 1,500 bin lifts, which is really what the market is looking for, the most of the market is looking for in the US. Now, they're big um, refuse companies, Republic and Waste Management. And those guys operate 20,000 refuse vehicles alone. They make commitments to go zero emission, but they need uh, need a product that does the job and, and carries the payload and the economics make sense. And there's a real trade-off with each of those every time you try to positively impact on one, you generally negatively impact on, on another. But we're pretty pretty excited about that. Once we launch that in the US, we intend to offer that in the Australian market as well. Yeah, fantastic. And is it is it the um is it the hydraulics like the bin lift um, and I guess the compaction that sucks the most energy out of the battery, or is it still the mileage that's the, the, the key? It's a combination of, and it depends how the vehicle's being operated. You know, um, uh, battery electric solutions like start-stop start operations, which is generally pretty good for refuge, for refuse, right, particularly side loaders, because you, you, know, you, you, you start-stop and you get regenerative braking while you're, uh, while you're stopping. Um, but, yeah, the things that we've, we've worked on with uh, the, um, the body suppliers here in the um, in Australia with the early generation stuff we deployed was do, do some smart things like only compact every two to three bin lifts, um, which um, uh, yeah, because you, you don't necessarily need to do the full body compact every time. It's just easier for the body manufacturers to do that, and it doesn't consume any extra energy in diesel product. It does in a battery electric. So so to compact every third um, yeah, bin lift. Um, uh, makes a makes a difference to uh, to energy consumption, but the end goal is to achieve in the US 150 miles, 1500 bin lifts. That's the holy grail with 10,000 pounds of payload, um, and have the economics make sense, have a return on investment that makes sense without the need for um, uh, for investment. When achieving those three things, just in the refuse space, that whole industry will, will transition to zero emission overnight. Um, and that's why we're constantly focusing on the reduction of costs, reduction of weight, uh, and improving efficiency, um, and not relying on incentives. You know, we saw the um, uh, you know the EV um, uh, strategy paper come out a couple of days ago, and you know, there's nothing nothing in there for commercial vehicles. It's all passenger car. Um, we need to be able to to create a business model and a product range that that can scale without relying on on governments to do what's needed. 
Yeah, I think there was uh, there was a few people that were a bit bit disappointed with the with the announcement yesterday. It kind of lacked lacked a fair bit of detail, um, and yeah, I think think we kind of delayed the implementation of um, of vehicle emission standards, or we don't we still don't know when those are going to come in. Um, but that kind of brings me to um, to asking your thoughts on um, the US government's approach to incentivizing the industry. Um, We've heard a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, it's almost been like a, a vortex sucking in manufacturer, battery manufacturers um, in, into the US. I know Tesla has, has shifted some of their um, Berlin-based battery production back to the US just to take advantage of the, um, of the IRA bill. Um, yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on, that, on that policy and, and um, yeah, do you think it's had a, had a big impact? Yeah, I think the IRA will, not, not immediately, will have a significant impact on attracting um, suppliers primarily um, to manufacture or assemble in the US. Um, our battery supplier and our motor suppliers are both now, which are you know, they're Chinese originated companies, both have programs underway to try to look for local manufacturing to benefit from that. Um, for us, uh, our, our customers get a, a, a tax deduction up to $40,000 on a, a commercial vehicle um, uh, under the IRA program. But the thing that's really driven the last mile um, and uh, commercial vehicle transition in the US is, is policy that was put into place three or four years ago. Um, initially, what was known as the, um, uh, the uh, advanced clean truck rule, um, which uh, essentially mandates that um, the OEMs, the manufacturers, have to have a certain percentage of uh, of zero emission sales um, starting this year. So they gave them three years notice to do that. Uh, it was developed by California, the California Air Resources Board initially, but it's been adopted by 14 other states um, that collectively make up about 50% of the volume in the US. And so starting at the end of this year, any OEM that's selling in California or any other state, you know, be it Volvo or Hino or the likes, they have to have 9% zero emission sales of new product. Um, or they effectively are fined and, and potentially not able to sell in that market. Um, and it increases by 3% effectively every year. So you know, next year will be 12% and 15%. So a bit of a big stick approach, but um, it's, it's uh, created the activity that we've benefited from. Uh, they've now introduced a, a, a rule called the Advanced Clean Fleet Rule, which is mandating fleets have to have a certain percentage of zero emission um, sales starting in 2025 um, to force them to, to, to force the transition. That costs nothing. Um, you know, it's policy. It's, um, and, you know, I, I presented that actually in Canberra as part of the, um, the submission papers for, um, uh, for this, um, um, you know, the policy pop, uh, document that came out yesterday. None of it was taken up. In fact, they, they specifically said in that paper that it's, yeah, their strategy is all around passenger cars. And I think it's a huge opportunity lost. They could have run them both simultaneously. Um, the passenger car process is going to take a lot of time, starting from kind of nothing. Uh, and it's going to take a lot of time to benefit from. There's 20% of, of, uh, of emissions in Australia are, um, are from the transport industry. You know, only 10% or half of that is passenger car. The, a good majority of the rest is commercial vehicles. Passenger car yeah. is also down the track. Commercial vehicles is now. You know, we've got we've had manufacturing in Melbourne for you know, coming up six years, seven years. 
Um, we could scale this now for every truck you take off the road. Not only do you take the health issues away from the particulates, but it's, it's the equivalent of a can be the equivalent of up to thirty cars, and it can happen yeah, now. Wow. Um, and yet, there's you know, no policy, um, you know, no real incentives, um, and no acknowledgement at this stage of of the commercial vehicle industry. Yeah, it's such a it's such a shame, and and yeah, the the last mi- the last mile vehicle um industry it it could it could have been well it could be um a real opportunity for australia obviously it's a lot more difficult to do the high volume passenger vehicle manufacturing but as as you guys have proven um we can do this the 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 smaller sort of niche stuff here um and yeah i mean hopefully um the government takes a closer look at that closer look at this moving forward and even state governments to try to you know in, incentivize um more of this work being done being done yeah, so it's re- re- really easy for them to implement some policy just just emulate what's been done in other markets uh, mm. you know, don't worry don't even worry about financial incentives just emulate some of the policy um <laughs> you know, things like <clears throat> zero emission delivery zones in um you know highly highly um you know populated um uh, cbds for delivery vehicles is a great way of incentivizing fleets to, to you know, trial and test and um, and make the transition. There's so many things that could be done, but uh, it was, a, as I said, lost opportunity, just focusing on passenger car, and it's going to take a long time to benefit from that strategy paper that they put into place yesterday. And why do you think, what, what do you think the reasons are behind that? Why, why isn't the government being more, more ambitious, do you think? One, I don't think they really understand commercial vehicles, but yeah, you know, there's also a, you know, trucks don't carry voters, right? Um, and so it's, um, you know, I think there's a, there's, yeah, there's a bit of, bit of that. There's a lot of that. Um, and, you know, and, you know, commercial vehicles are, are generally a, um, you know, an asset that there's a, a company getting a return on investment from. So I think the view is, well, you know, the companies will work out their own strategy there, will help, um, you know, mum and dad, um, uh, mum and dad at home get an electric vehicle. Uh, and don't get me wrong, what they've done with the strategy paper is critical in terms of passenger car because there's been nothing in place for a long, long time. But they could have easily run simultaneously a program around um, commercial vehicle um, electrification and with some very easy, no-cost um, uh, strategies or uh, policy initiatives that would uh, would help the, the uptake of an industry that already exists. Um, you know, there is local manufacturing uh, now with the likes of C-Electric in uh, electric commercial vehicles. There's no other uh, you know, in its type in passenger car. Do you think uh, st- state governments could step in more in this area as well, or do you think it's more a federal a federal thing? Well, I think they uh, yeah, I think they could. It's it, yeah, the policy. I, sp- I suppose just thinking aloud. You know, California took the lead. I was going to say it should be done federally, but California took the lead in the US and and drove policy that was taken up by other states. So yeah, arguably, um, arguably, states could take the lead like California. You know, and introduce the um, you know those sort of uh, you know advanced clean you know truck regulations, and you know they they then supported that with a heavy vehicle what's called HFIP, the heavy vehicle incentive program that gave significant initially significant um, uh, discounts or or um, grants towards early adopters uh, on a per unit basis with caps at you know kind of ten or or twenty vehicles. 
Uh, and most of that was funded, I think, in the US by the, um, the fines that were received from uh, the Volkswagen diesel emission scandal that were then uh, sent out to the states and shared. So I'm not sure how, how it would be funded here, but even if they, they didn't do the HFIP and disintroduce policy, that would help drive, you know, drive the uptake. And those OEMs that have accepted that, that policy in the, in the US are the same OEMs that are present here, you know, the, the Hinos, the, the um, um, uh, Isuzus, uh, Fuzos of the world, you know, they've accepted that policy. They've accepted they need a certain percentage of zero emission. They didn't want to have to do that, but they've accepted it. So it would be readily accepted in Australia as well if it was to be implemented. Uh, but, you know, those discussions just didn't, didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and, yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts as well on where um, where the technology is now and, and where it's heading. Um, we've heard recently that there's a, a lot of new battery chemistries that are coming out which in, improve the battery density um, quite, quite significantly. Where, where, where do you think, or yeah, could you give us an idea of where, how, how far battery technology has come um, especially, I guess, in the conversion in the conversion space that, that you're in, and and where you see it moving in in the next five to ten years. Our view is that the fundamental battery technology for electric vehicles, which is lithium ion, uh, is here for the foreseeable future. But much like in the phone, you know, in your mobile phone, which is the same fundamentally the same technology, the batteries are just getting smaller and, and more energy dense. But it's the same battery, you know, a fundamental underlying chemistry. We use NMC um, you know, nickel manganese cobalt, which interestingly, you know, looking at the report yesterday, Australia is the biggest supplier of nickel in the world, third biggest supplier of manganese, third biggest supplier of uh, of cobalt. Uh, largest supplier of lithium in the world, and yet all of that product's being dug out of the ground and, and sent overseas. So I like what I saw in the strategy paper about um, um, you know, looking at battery options, but the challenge they've, <laughs> they've got with that is that you need a supplier, you, know, you need a, uh, an, end, um, uh, an end customer for batteries, and arguably we're, we're the only customer in Australia that, uh, that needs batteries, and um, um, you know, they need to be a certain type of battery that we need to be part of, uh, not uh, not developing batteries for uh, for passenger cars and trying to ship them overseas or, or even modules or cells just doesn't work. So it's got to be a local uh, a local um, uh, local industry. But in terms of technology, we think uh, and our intention is to continue to work with our supplier who during the journey with our supplier they have without changing chemistry have gone from 12 and a half amp hour to 15 amp hour this is battery density to 17.5 and we're now just launching with volvo their first 19 amp hour cell um you know, that's increasing density by 70 75 percent over a five yeah, six wow. year period of time without us asking it's just come as part of their efficiencies and economies of scale and the cost is going down so density is going up, cost is going down. You know, it's a perfect storm of, of um, electrification um, uh, scaling in its, uh, in its own right. We do, however, in terms of line of sight, we have line of sight on solid state batteries. So they're still a fair way off, uh, but we think they will be the next step change of, uh, of battery technology and electrification. Um, but these uh, little companies that come out of, um, you know, make big announcements about doubling um, you know, battery density and, and the likes of current generation product, we, we really don't um, don't take much notice for because yeah. scale is so important. Even if the technology's there, you know, battery supplier has dedicated one gigawatt hour of, uh, of battery supply to us. 
for a company to develop a new technology and then get it to a scale like that mm. at a price point that's needed is very difficult to do, particularly in developed countries. Um, so we we honestly think it'll be lithium iron for us NMC or, or LFP. LFP pricing seems to be coming down at a higher rate than NMC, um, and then transitioning to solid state at some time in the future, probably three to five years away, um, when that's um, economically viable. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of, um, as you say, a lot of uh, technologies or chemistries coming out that are that are offering four times, five times the density that there is now. But as you say, it's it's such a long journey to get those to to um, scale scale production rates, I guess. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. I was just listening in this morning uh, to Tesla's um, Q1 earnings call, and um, Elon Musk was uh, was basically pleading for companies to start refining lithium. He, he said, "This the, the mining of lithium is not not the problem. We we need to increase the." The refining of it um that's, that's really the, the bottom it is the one thing that australia should focus um from a, a battery you know um, supply chain perspective it should be the refining space particularly lithium um as I said we're, we're the largest supplier in the world um uh if i had a uh, you know a big um, a big checkbook sitting aside wanted to invest in something it would be um developing um lithium refining or a lithium refinery in Australia for, for global supply. Uh, it's a massive. Is, is anyone is anyone making moves on that? Is there is there any current pilot projects or anything in Australia that are they're looking at getting into lithium refining? I hope there is, but I, I, I'm not aware of I'm not aware of anything. And um, um, as I said, I, I hope there is. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, just just finally. Um, well, got maybe one or two more questions. I, I want to get a sense of. Um, I mean, I I get the sense that twenty twenty three is a real turning point for the electric vehicle industry um, globally, uh, with you know with, with the IRA coming out in twenty twenty two, and we we it it just kind of feels like it's hitting uh, critical mass now. So I wanted to get your thoughts on on that. Um, and also um, wanted to to hear your thoughts on where where C Electric is is heading over the next five to ten years. Yeah, well, I agree with you that um, uh, twenty three, and I think the end of twenty three is going to be a key um, uh, key catalyst. Yeah, twenty two um, should have been, but on the back of COVID and the associated supply chain issues and freight issues and the likes, you know, drove drove costs up and um and uh, capital markets were, were really choppy so so those in the space couldn't couldn't raise the capital they needed us us we were the same we only raised about a third of what we hoped to last year um the capital markets are stabilizing there's a a, a real um real confidence level for second half of this year and i think i think 2024 is going to be the really exciting year um for particularly our space in the commercial vehicle uh, segment for for production scale and and true scale and you know in line of sight of our next step we're still a private company we're very lucky we were able to stay private during um you know the the, the choppy last choppy couple of years um but um you know that that mightn't always be the case we we obviously need to think about what we what we do next and um um, and we're lucky in that we we're, we have line of sight of being EBITDA positive the end of this year and free cash flow positive early next year uh, with the final raise that we're doing now. 
um, which means we're, we're kind of independent from them. We don't have to rely on the capital markets. We've got great, good margins in, in all of our, our um, the countries we're producing now and a big order bank. But we've also got institutional investors that you know, like the idea of a liquidity event down the track. So we'll, um, we'll, we'll consider all options. Um, but outside of, of uh, you know, private or public, our, our game plan is, is scale. It's about um, executing on um, scale, executing scale on the technology we've developed. It's now patented in, in 14 jurisdictions. We just, just had Israel um, uh, patented last week. We've already got North America uh, fully, fully protected. Europe uh, pre-Christmas we had, uh, we had covered. Um, so we've got uh, high value and uh, proven technology that is now readily scalable. Uh, we're in seven countries at the moment, and I'd like to see in five years we're in uh, 14, 15, you know, maybe 20 countries um, but scaling the same technology we've got now and partnering with, with OEMs and, um, uh, and uh, other collaborators that need support. Yeah, fantastic. As, uh, as a famous uh, electric vehicle comp company CEO once said, um, prototypes are easy and production is hard. Um, so, yeah, it's all, about, it's all about scale now, isn't it? Um, yeah, that's, it's incredibly exciting. Um, well, thanks very much for, for your time today, Tony. It's been, been fascinating to hear, um, to hear uh, your thoughts on what's, what's happening in the industry and what, what Sea Electric is, is doing. Um, now, you'll be at the truck show you mentioned in May. Will, will Sea Electric have a stand there or will, will, you, will you guys be with, um, with, with someone else? No, no, well, we've got our own booth at um, uh, the truck show in Brisbane in May. So I think we're displaying five, five vehicles there, um, as we do at the ACT, um, ACT show in Anaheim in uh, early May. So I think the truck show here is the 17th, 18th of May. As I said, I'm coming back from, uh, for that. I'm doing some media there and uh, we'll be at the, uh, at the show for the, uh, for the whole week. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, I'll probably be heading up there as well. So I'm looking forward to, to meeting in person. and. Um, yeah, wish wish uh, wish you and the business all the best um, in the coming months months ahead. Terrific. Uh, thanks, Dan. Really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks, Tony. And that was Tony Feather Fairweather um, from SEA Electric, interviewed by uh, Daniel Bleakley. Um, Daniel, um, welcome back. Thank you very much for that interview. Yeah, thanks very much, Charles. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear what what Tony had to say. They're um, they're doing some pretty big things. Yeah, I was fascinated by that thing with the electric buses and the idea that uh, kids can actually um, are more likely to go to school in an electric bus than they are in a diesel bus. And um, I don't quite blame them, actually. I remember going to Europe last year and talking to um, fleet, uh, truck fleet op um, operators, you know, logistics, and they said that they'd, once their drivers had driven an electric truck, they didn't want to go back to a diesel truck. So um, I think it's the same for the drivers, the passengers and everybody else around them. Basically, electric is so much better. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, Tony, you also made the point about um, the benefit to the drivers not, not being exposed to the, the diesel diesel pollution. And, and yeah, if you think there's there's going to be hundreds of thousands of, of bus drivers or garbage truck drivers out there who are exposed to this stuff every day. So um, the faster we can get them out of diesel and onto electric, the better. Yeah. Now, look, one of the main, um, well, 
I guess it's all going to come down to policy, really. Um, Australia launched this week its national, its first national electric vehicle um, strategy. Um, Tony sounded a bit disappointed, noting that it doesn't really do much for last mile deliveries, and I think there's been a bit of other other bit of disappointment there too, saying. Look, it's all very well and fine, and it's great that the government has actually promised to deliver a vehicle of fuel emission standard, um, because we're the only ones in the world, apart from Russia, that doesn't have one. But um, a lot of frustration with the fact that they're still going to do even more consultations. I would have thought they'd been doing consultations for the last decade. Yeah, that's right. And and the fact that the uh, National Electric Vehicle Strategy kind of missed the uh, last mile, as it's called, last mile delivery uh, vehicles is it's it's a real shame because I think that that uh, niche kind of industry is a big opportunity for for Australia. Obviously, doing mass production of passenger cars is is difficult in Australia, but for doing the kind of things that that Sea Electric do with their conversions, um, yeah, the government could probably step in and, and provide a bit more support there. Yeah, and um, SEA not the only uh, company doing conversions. Uh, it's interesting, you wrote a story this week about um, Janus Electric, which is one that's actually taking existing trucks, um, ones likely to come up for the sort of a retooling of their diesel engines after about a million kilometres or however much they have to do <laughs> before they get to that stage, and then replacing that with electric motor and a big battery where the fuel tanks would normally go. And um, Oz Minerals down in South Australia, the operator's one of the big copper mines down there, Prominent Hill, is using one to a three trailer a three trailer load truck so pulling 164 tons so i think as you astutely pointed out it won't just tow your boat it'll it'll tow 164 tons and um it's a a pretty interesting development too yeah that's right and there's also going to be huge cost savings for these operators as well because um as we know running electric is a, a lot cheaper to run per per kilometer than than diesel so not only are there going to be the health benefits but um yeah the, the obviously the cost of transport is going to come down a lot yeah interesting about the cost of um the um the cost of running the cars we've got queensland this week also announcing that it's going to double the size of its rebate for uh, passenger cars from three thousand to six thousand it is sort of capped at uh, households with an income of no more than $180,000, that's probably a, a reasonable thing. Um, but really interesting, Queensland's probably tr- dragged behind the rest of the country in the take-up of EVs. Um, you're a man from central Queensland, I'm not too sure why you think that might be, but um, um, it was interesting to hear their energy minister talk about the savings that you can get now. And I think the RACQ also came out and said, well, with this rebate, you can basically lease and loan a car for the same price as a fossil fuel equivalent. That's got to be a major breakthrough. Yeah, it's a really, really promising announcement from the, the Queensland government today. Um, Queensland has been trailing most of the other states on EV uptake. Um, I think the fourth quarter of last year, um, only South Australia and the Northern Territory had, had slower rates of, of EV uptake. But I'm sure that this this new rebate will, will help boost those numbers. And Queensland also has the, the highest rates of... Uh, rooftop solar uptake um, in Australia. So yeah, EV drivers are, uh, are definitely going to benefit from that. Um, assuming, of course, they can actually connect. And um, yeah. uh, there's actually, we, we had a great story to this, this week as well, uh, just looking at the uh, the problems 
Well, actually, the rules that have been imposed by the networks up in Queensland about basically sort of stopping people from being able to tap into their roof, own rooftop solar um, to charge their EVs. Now, as it turns out, everyone's pretty much ignoring that and just sort of just ignoring those rules. But it just seems to be an incredibly dumb thing. And it, it's it's not the only dumb thing that Queensland networks have done. I mean, they've got this sort of ripple control on their rooftop solar, which also sort of limits... Um, so there's a fair bit of work. We keep on talking about all these wonderful new technologies, but all these legacy companies, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I presume it's to sort of protect their existing business models, um, but they seem to sort of have these sort of technical barriers um, in the way of full deployment. And I don't understand why that would be in Queensland because the damn things are state-owned. Yeah, that's right. It's a bit of a strange one. And um, yeah, these little obstacles uh, keep seem to keep popping up now and then um, when you least expect them. But, um, but I think as the, the electric vehicle community grows, there's, there's just going to become more and more political pressure um, on state and federal governments to, um, to really iron out these, these little problems and, and make the transition a lot smoother. Yeah. Hey, let's just uh, finish off with some other news from around the world. The Chinese battery maker Cattle, um, spelled C-A-T-L, not the sort of the cattle as in the cows, um, biggest uh, battery maker in the world, uh, announced this week that it's um, 500 watt hours per kilo. So we're talking energy density here, which is really important because just basically with a really energy dense battery, it means you don't need as many batteries to go as far as you would otherwise so the more the bigger the energy density the more you're going to be able to drive your car and even they're suggesting this kind of paves the way to even have electric aviation and the big question there was well can you put enough batteries in the plane to take it from one place to another with doubled um, energy density um, that now looks like a real possibility yeah that's right i was uh, i was quite surprised to see this news uh come out yesterday and yeah to be honest i, I think this is one of the biggest electrification stories of, of the year um we've seen uh quite a few reports recently of the development of, of high density batteries but most of them are coming from from labs or research centers um which aren't yet in the mass production scale so the fact that this is coming from CATL, which is the, as you say, the largest battery manufacturer in the world, um, is quite incredible, and and that they're going to start mass production this year. So, um, yeah, we may see this technology going into electric vehicles um, in 2024. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, the other piece of interesting news this week was the Tesla first quarter results. A lot of focus on their short-term fall in earnings down about 20-24%, a tightening in margins, mainly because Tesla is sort of um, reducing its prices. But a lot of people seem to miss the big picture here, which was basically where Tesla is taking the industry. And I think sort of Elon Musk sort of talked about it uh, in terms of, you know, we could actually sell our cars for zero and still make money down the track from all these different subscription services, including autopilot, which he is still convinced is actually going to happen. Now, we can probably observe from the legacy car industry is that they probably also sell their cars for close to a zero margin, um, and then make their money about the fact that they're pretty unreliable and the motors and the engines are pretty complicated, got a thousands of different parts and keep on breaking down, and that's where they make their money. <laughs> Tesla's taking them in a different direction. Could you just tell us a bit more about it and why it's so important? Yeah, well, I, I thought um, there was a few comments during the earnings call yesterday that were from from Elon Musk that were, were really fascinating. And um, 
Yeah, he, he made the observation about the legacy automotive industry kind of being similar to the way the the razor um, razor blade industry works where, you know, you, you buy a, a shaver for quite cheap, um, but then once you've got the shaver, you've got to buy the, the blades that go with it and, and that's where they make their, their margins. And it's um, Musk was saying that's quite similar to how the legacy automotive industry works where... Um, the margins are quite are quite thin on the on the sale. So, f- for example, Toyota, I think last year, their average um, margin per vehicle was was only around a thousand US dollars. But then they do make a lot of money on the the servicing and the spare parts industry. Um, and I believe uh, most of the industry is um, is similar to that. So, yeah, what what Tesla's doing with um, with with their business model is that um, they're able to generate revenue from uh, subscription of software um, such as um, full self driving or even the the Spotify subscription, which is only small but still. Um, plus their their huge vehicle charging network, which means that they can essentially sell the um, the vehicles at cost price if they wanted to, and still still generate revenue. Um, into the future and one of the interesting things about this is it, it changes the incentive uh, structure around the design of, of vehicles so that um, the the design will end up um, be becoming more reliable because that, that, that's how they'll generate more long-term term income well there's actually a motivation then for the car makers to well for tesla to to actually make those cars as reliable as they could possibly make them and um that'd be a nice change because um, i think everyone now i mean in so many different products that we buy they can they seem to be designed to fail after a certain time and uh, we either have to buy new ones or repair them or, or or do whatever so it would be really good just for the whole idea of a circular economy in this sort of clean energy future to actually have things which actually last a long time <laughs> And and um, are sort of cheap, reliable, and clean um, all at the same time. Yeah, that's right. There's there has been this kind of built-in redundancy, uh, not just in the auto industry, but in in a lot of products for for many years. So, yeah, if the, if if these new models are incentivizing longevity, um, that can only be that can only be a good thing. Mm. Great stuff. Well, thanks, Daniel. We'll wrap up this um, podcast here, I reckon. Um, Thanks very much for your interview with uh, Tony Fairweather from SEA Electric. Um, Thanks to all the listeners out there. Thanks to NRMA for your support. And we'll be back in a fortnight um, or even possibly less than that with the next in our series um, for the Driven Podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by the NRMA, who are leading the charge in helping Australians transition to electric vehicles. The NRMA offers advice, online communities and EV loans to help drivers at every stage of their electric vehicle journey. And with their ever-expanding regional fast charging network, the NRMA is committed to ensuring all communities remain connected.